Hello again and welcome to Candian Conversations, an informal podcast discussion of pop culture and the liberal arts. My name is Dr. Dre, lecturer in literature at Campion College. When she died in 1817, Jane Austen had published four novels, Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, and Emma, works that under the name of any other author would have been regarded as singular masterpieces. As it was, however, Austen's name was not known to her readers. Forced to wrestle with the sexism of her society, Austen was compelled to publish her work pseudonymously and with the intermediary services of her brother. Thus, it was only with the posthumous publication of her last two novels, Northanger Abbey and Persuasion, that she was finally identified and her deserved reputation as one of the most talented and evolutionary writers of her or any other age could be confirmed. Austen's writing was wry and engaging. She explored the complexities of her character's psyches in ways heretofore unseen in fiction. She reshaped the novel form, helping to legitimize it as a new experimental method of literary expression, provided texts so beloved and iconic that they've since been reappropriated and reiterated upon in works like Clueless and Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and about 15,000 hours of costume drama output from the BBC. To discuss the canon of Jane Austen's novels, their themes, their characters, and social satire, I'm joined today by Anna Hitchings, Media and Communications Officer of Campion College, and fellow lecturer Dr. Jeremy Bell. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Yes, indeed. The easiest question to start with, and arguably the most difficult one to answer, is what is it about Austen's work that has endured? What is it that is so remarkable about Austen as a writer? Well, I suppose I should start by saying Austen is my favourite novelist. Oh, really? Oh, of wow. time, great. Yes, most definitely. Um, I think it was Virginia Woolf who said about Austen, of all great writers, of all great novelists, she's the hardest one to catch in the act of greatness. Oh, that's fantastic. It's a good line, and yeah. I think it's true. When I was doing my PhD in Chicago, an exam that we had to do in this program involved reading uh, between 12 and 15 great texts over a course of months and then doing a three to five day exam. And one of the books I chose for my list was Emma. I have to confess, I was actually glad I didn't get a question on it because much as I love Emma, um, it's my favourite of her books, my favourite novel, full stop, again and again preparing for it, I thought, what exactly do you say about it? How do you... How do you talk about it? And without meaning to be uncharitable, I also found reading secondary literature, much of it, I thought, this is really woeful. Just uninteresting, uninspired, but above all, much of the time, missing the point. Yes, I I, I sometimes imagine Jane Austen, the person just sitting there with all her commentators. (laughs) um, Rolling her eyes. Well, no, no, not even rolling her eyes, just sitting there absolutely still while commentators as it were, put questions to her and say, and here you're doing this, and here you're doing that, yeah. and she just sits there not saying a word. And talk because, around her, yeah. Because that's the way she is as a, as a commentator. I mean, actually, that's not a bad place to start, I think. The fact that, unlike so many novelists, she plays the silent observer so very much. Mm. It makes the rare moments when you actually hear the author's voice all the more magical. But so much of the time, she simply describes, relates what characters do and what they say, quotes letters, and her voice is absent. I mean, that's, a, that's an oversimplification in, in mm. one sense. I suppose you can say it's quite clear, normally at least, with whom her sympathies lie, but not always. Yeah, there's um, a fluidity with the, the way that she relates to her characters, moves into their innermost thoughts and then steps back out mm. again. That, and and I, do, I do think that that... that uh, I said fluidity. I was going to say fluctuation, but I'll stick with fluidity. I think that, that 
inability to nail down exactly where she's situated as author at any given time creates that wonderful sort of sense of sympathy and, and mm. affinity that you get with the characters. I don't think it wouldn't be that way if it weren't for the fact that at the same time you feel as if every little detail that she's put in there is there for a reason. Absolutely. Yeah. A bit like a film director like Stanley Kubrick, for instance. Um, it might be an odd comparison, but something that's always struck me about Kubrick's films is that even if you're not sure that he knew why he was doing things, <laughs> nonetheless, every little thing is deliberate. Yeah. And you feel you're in, you're in the presence of someone who knows exactly what he wants, hopefully knows why he wants it. And, <laughs> yeah, and that in itself makes for engrossing viewing. And likewise with Austen, I mean, I'm sure she knew why she wanted the things she put in there. That, that's, okay, that's a positive observation, too, to make about Austen. I think she, she brings to life the wonderful drama of the ordinary of everyday life. Mm. Um, I remember my grandmother, who was a member of a Jane Austen society, I think, was once talking about the commentators on Austen who say, look, she was writing at such a dramatic time in the ordinary sense of the word, Napoleonic Wars, French Revolution, all the rest of it, and yet she never really talks about that. I mean, yes, yeah. you have sailors, and Captain and Wentworth and sailors and things like that, but, the, but her, her entire focus is yeah, the domestic, the world of women, you could say. Mm. And when my grandmother said this, my immediate response, I was only a teenager, I think, was to say, no, she was concerned about the important things. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I wouldn't quite see it in that light now, I don't think, but I'd hold on to some of what I thought then, which is that, yes, she, um, the moral drama of every little word, every little thing that people do and say, that's what's so wonderful about Austen. Mm. And for me, too, the, 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 the episode in Austen that most illustrates that is the Box Hill outing. Oh, um, Emma, in Emma. Of course, yes, yeah. in Emma. Oh, yeah. When the they go to pick wonderful strawberries? Moment. Yes, well, when they go to pick strawberries and you have the infuriating but um, good-natured Miss Bates prattling on, as she always does. In fact, let's talk about this. I mean, as I say, it's my favourite novel and, and this, this is one of the most wonderful, if terrible, scenes in it. They decide to play the game where... This is the game with the letters. And the, yes, the yeah. game with the letters and... If you can't be clever, then you have to say, I, I forget what the number is, something like um, two or three silly things. And at that point, Miss Bates says, oh, I'm sure I should be able to do that without any trouble. And this is the way it's written. Emma couldn't resist. And then you have her mm. line. Ah, but there may be a difficulty. You'll have to limit yourself to only two or three. And the it's sense excruciating. Of, oh, it's mm. wonderful. Because, of course, <laughs> you can just you can understand so easily why she says it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and as, as the reader, you've been lulled yes. into having that irritation with Miss Bates as well. Like, exactly. By and that you're point, it with Emma Exactly. Well. Well, yes, not exactly. Well, no, I mean, throughout, yeah. the, throughout the novel, I mean, your sympathy has been with Emma, so you're sort of along with her. That, that she's been up putting up point. with this. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. but, but you're right. That, that action punctures all... I mean, it's so, mm. as you're saying, it's so masterful that, that Austen loads the book in that way. You're, mm. you're sympathetic to Emma, who's been putting up with this prattling for 400 pages. But in that moment, with those words, when she lets her sort of the social niceties slip for a moment... It all just evaporates, and, and you just you feel the horror of it that yes. reverberates it's like out a in that bomb moment. exploding. It, it is. <laughs> it's incredible. And again, she deals with it so beautifully because the next comment is about Miss Bates. Um, it takes her a moment to understand. Oh, so and sad. Then, yes, I just got tingles. I know. When you said that. And her face reddens, and then and I think that's the way it's described. Um, the reddening of her face showed that though it could not anger, yet it could pain her. Yeah. And just think, oh, heaven help us. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it is, I mean, as you're saying, like, not to 
and I, I do want to ask you. No, that's fine. No, I'm <laughs> uh, enjoying this. No, but but there is that moment where they uh, Austin is is directing our attention to the power of words. They're playing a silly game with letters where yes. they have to come mm. up. Like it, it's all about how impactful and meaningful and potent words can be. And then she just, in a thoughtless act, mm. again in, indulges that playful sort of snarky comedy that she has just beneath the surface of all of her interactions up until that point and it just erupts it's like that the ugliness of wit is, is yes, sort of exposed and the cruelty and yeah. she crosses that line mm. like up until that point that, that irony has been the undertone of all of her interactions but at that point she actually does cross the line and you feel it and it's that feeling of a bit of shame i think oh, on yes. the yeah. of Emma, mm. who you love but you recognise in that moment has done something not... And, and Knightley, who great. is the one person who can... I don't want to say chastise, but I guess he does. No, he, he does chastise, straight up yeah. Yeah. He chastises yeah. yeah. But he's mm. standing there, and even before he takes her aside and says, you know, badly done, Emma, yes. you already feel the weight of it because of, again, like Austin has introduced us into the inner psyche of Emma so spectacularly that you feel him there and his judgment even before... It, it's mm. delivered. It's and it's that awful cringeful moment, you know, when you know you've done something bad and you know exactly. that someone's gonna, mm. going to yeah. going to scold you and no one enjoys the feeling. Well, and and, and you deserve it too, yeah. Yeah, and you feel it coming and you know it's deserved, but you don't want to experience it. <laughs> what makes it, it even more wonderful, I think, is what then follows it in the Box Hill picnic because I think it's Mr. Weston, you know, the good-natured but not especially bright Mr. Weston. <laughs> it becomes his turn to you know, come up with a piece of wit and so his wit is, what two letters in the English language express perfection? M-A. Emma. <laughs> and you think of all the moments that this clumsy compliment. And I, I have to say, I had a theory. I, I, ba- I remember bouncing this off um, a friend of mine years ago, and he agreed with me that there's a sort of twofold thing going on there. On the one hand, it's, yes, this horrible denouement to this Box Hill picnic mm. with Emma's gaff. But at the same time, it's also Jane Austen sort of quietly saying, yes, this novel, Emma, is perfection. Because yeah, I, yeah. I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> of all her novels, it's just... Mm. It's such a magic trick. Uh, that, and I think we'll circle back to this when we discuss her characters in general, but Emma is a character who, in any other book, would be despicable. You would you would hate her for the way she mm-hmm. meddles, the, yeah, the narcissism, the, uh, the... There is a real selfishness in her character, but Austen so elegantly presents her and and makes us aware that she doesn't re- like she's not she's doing not these things exactly and there's a, i think that there's an um you feel very there's an innocence about emma i think yeah, that, that yeah. you feel and so it makes her it makes her um very likable is it naivete is that yeah the... i think no, no it wasn't the word i was thinking of oh it'll come to me anyway yeah but, but most certainly endearing like, she's very endearing yeah she is although i mean you probably know the line of Austen herself about Emma, the character. Um, she wrote to a friend of her saying, I'm taking a heroine that no one but myself will much like. Mm, really? <laughs> yes. No, I hadn't heard that. Yes, and it, it's interesting because I think when I first encountered Emma via the, the Gwyneth Paltrow film, um, I mean, I disliked that film intensely. Um, I but in particular, film. I know. <laughs> in particular, I, I disliked the character of Emma, and that then coloured my reading of the novel for the first time, and I ah. certainly disliked her as a character to begin with. Right. And then re- reading it again years later, I thought, no, actually, in her own... It, this is part of the magic of the novel. Yeah. She is so, in certain ways, so unlikable, and yet you can't help liking yeah. her. Yeah, absolutely. And, mm. the, yeah, and you put that down, to obviously, to the brilliance of the way that she's written as a character. Yes. 
and, and of, sorry, go no, on. no, I was just going to say, I, I think it is that she is the one who needs to be most disabused of her misconceptions. And that's what the whole book is mm, about, is exactly. leading up to yeah, her. And so she is the harshest upon herself at the end of the book. And by that point, of course, you're totally in love with her. And you're like, oh, no, Emma, no, please. <laughs> Faultless but, despite her faults. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Or things. But, but it, it requires that the elegance of the way... And I keep saying elegant. I, I need to find a, a synonym uh, equally suitable. But th- there is. It's just... The the way that Austen structures the book is so beautiful and so captivating and presents her character in such a, a fully formed way with all of its, you know, myriad contradictions and uh, confusions and blindness, like elemental blindness, which may be naivete, maybe infantilization, whatever it is, so that you can get to that point, so that you mm. can have that eruption, that explosion of that social situation that then shocks even herself to to finally scrutinize herself in a way that she hasn't been capable of doing throughout the entirety Mm. of the novel. And to then, by sort of stepping outside of herself, re-examine what she actually does feel towards Mr. Knightley and her relationship with her father and her friends. And it's, again, only possible because of the way that she has walked us through that self-indulgent you're making me want to read it again actually I've only read Emma once and uh, it was a few years ago now but I have watched the I have watched the film many many times well uh, so this is a a, probably a perfect time to uh, ask you a question I'm so sorry Anna that I haven't uh, already but what are the kind of what are the themes that you see running through uh, Austen's novels and and how do they surface in your favourite of her works well I mean I've been a fan of Jane Austen for honestly almost as long as I can remember I think as, as, as soon as I was able to understand you know film I've basically been a fan but I think that the reason that she's so popular and the reason I mean still so perennially popular and the reason that what she's written works so well is because she's really dealing with eternal truths and I think that you just feel that intuitively but she crafts those in such a beautiful way with such beautiful language and I think it's (laughs) there's a line in um the film you've got mail where the, the main characters not written by Jane <laughs> Austen, Austen. amazing. No, but the main character is a big fan of Jane Austen, and she says, "I just get, love getting lost in the words, like dither and mischance and felicity." And and um, and I think there, I mean, it's a it's, it's a silly throwaway line, but there is kind of something to that. It is is it is very beautifully presented, so that's definitely a part of it. But she was, I think, partly because she was dealing with subject matter that hadn't really been dealt with, certainly not from a woman's perspective, not from that angle, and her wonderful, wonderful sense of irony, which just tinges every single sentence, I think, in, mm. throughout her novels and you know, and the commentary she was making on society in that way that I think less astute people might miss if they're reading. But I think ultimately, at the end of the day, she's really dealing with, with, with humanity, with life, um, um, with relationships, romance and love. And, uh, and I think that the interactions between the characters and just the, what that says about us as human beings and what that says about the society of the time, I think that's why like all of her novels stand today as being so popular. Mm. Apart from it's just so exciting in our world, but it, which is so different to hers in uh, 1700s, 1800s England. It's, it's so nice to have a little uh, like a window into that world. And I think that there's a, there's a deep nostalgia and a deep sort of yearning for the sort of traditional values that I think we've lost in our world. And I think that's Oh, really? Love. You see, uh, do you find that as well? The, her, her portrait of the society is... I mean, are you I'm not going to lie. Like there's ideal? many reasons I'm glad I don't live in Jane Austen's day. I would say but, so. But, uh, but there's definitely... You don't have a Y chromosome, so you may have some, <laughs> some problems no, there. No, I'm lacking that. And plumbing is a big one as well. <laughs> but, uh, 
No, I think that that's, I think that the, the, there is definitely a, where, whether or not living at that time was rom as romantic as it seems on the page, I'm sure that it wasn't in many, many ways. I think there is definitely an appeal about that. Really? I think okay. people love kind of being drawn into that world and feeling like, like what, what it might have been like to live. Yeah. I, I think so, absolutely. Really? I mean, the very fact, costume drama, I mean... It's like, it's not just Jane Austen, it's any... Well, but I, I mean, I remember when there was the whole Jane Austen craze in the mid to late nineties, beginning with yeah, the BBC Pride and Prejudice, lots of um, thing, yeah. and good stuff. But I mean, in some ways, it actually it irritated me actually because I thought, look, so many of these people who you know love the series or say that they love the books, they seem to me to be missing the point. <laughs> they sort of like the costumes and the sipping tea and the sweet talk and <laughs> miss the bite. Mm. Um, but to start with what is perhaps right about that I think that okay th I may be wrong about this I suspect that what for many people is appealing about Austen even if they don't articulate it to themselves is that she presents a very ordered world mm. um, a world in which there are certain standards expectations certain things that are done and not done manners and comportment yes and, you know. and that is in a certain way the direct opposite of today's world oh absolutely I think there's a heart there's, 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 a, there's a real desire of the human heart for that I mean even just the I remember someone mentioning this to me a while ago even the fact that there were there were rules about how you even greeted a member of the same sex a member of the opposite sex depending on how well you knew them or whether they were family or a friend there were orders and rules for society which actually just made things a lot easier and a lot simpler because, you know, today's world, you're like, there's these questions that come up like, oh, how well do I know this? Do I give the handshake, kiss on the cheek? How do I, how, how do I even, I mean, that's just a sort of a small example, but I think that the fact that those structures were in place simplified societal interactions in a way that I think people kind of yearn for, even if they're not really aware of that's kind of what they're yearning for. Wow. I couldn't disagree more. Wow, okay. <laughs> no, just in my interpretation. No, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I do think that that, that is an appeal for the novels. It, I'm, I'm just saying my, my reading is very different because I find these books terrifying. And, it, and it's what I adore about them is that they're presenting a picture of society that is, if you're a woman, that's why I made that facetious crack before. <laughs> if you're a woman... Uh, it is, I want to say nightmare, it's not, not that extreme, but it is a frightening period in which to live. Like The first, the first line of Pride and Prejudice is, uh, you know, famously, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. And of course, that's a very funny beginning as an as a opening line. It's very ironic and wry and... Clearly what Austen is presenting is the mindset of, say, Mrs. Bennett, who, who we're going to be parodying, well, not parodying, but we're going to be playfully mocking for the remainder of the book, is that she's that obsessed with, well, all young men must be wanting a wife, and mm. we have to marry them off, uh, you know. All men with good fortune, that is. In, indeed. Very and important. <laughs> so everybody's obsessed with that, this universal truth that the entire society embraces. And yes, it's very funny, and it makes Mrs. Bennett very silly in the way that she obsesses over things but putting aside her hyperbolic reaction to it that fear that she's feeling comes from a real place of they, yeah they have a family of, of daughters if they can't marry them off they are screwed this yeah. is a, a time in which you know the landed gentry only have land only have security because uh, they can marry uh, in, in profitable ways and they've got daughters. So if, if they can't marry them off well, then when Mr. Bennett dies, and this is like ticking clock of his inevitable death, it doesn't happen in the book, obviously, but there is a sense in which the older and wearier he gets, the more dangerous it is for the girls. As, as that goes on, they 
seriously risk losing everything, their homes, their fortune, everything will be just be because of the, the laws of the time, will just be handed off to whatever the closest male relative is, and the women could be turfed, which, of course, is what Sense and Sensibility is all about, is yeah. the very real danger of that occurring to these women and how precarious their social status is. And I love that about the books. Again, it's not like a, I, I want some sort of Freddy Krueger specter of like social devastation hanging over all of the characters, but I do like that it, it makes these women more incredible like lizzie bennett becomes such a transcendent Mm. character for living in this environment and yet still having perhaps foolish but but admirable pride um you know having not selling herself away to an unhappy relationship with mr collins just because that would be easier and better mm. for the family. You know, it, I'm sure at the time... And I love the way that that's written you, because you sense the wrongness of that. You, you, you know, yeah. you're, you're screaming inside, don't do it, Lizzie, don't yeah, yeah. do it. It's not worth it. Even though I'm sure it's, like readers at the time may well have been thinking, you stupid girl, like you, you could actually secure some some sort of peace for your family with, yeah, well, you'll be unhappy. Exactly, but that's what she yeah, yes. yeah. She's older, to be fair. But, but there is a sense in which it, it, it is a little bit more than a little bit selfish of Lizzie not to do that. But yeah, as a modern reader, of course he's so damn right. Collins is reprehensible. Well, not reprehensible. He's Wait, not no, he's reprehensible. <laughs> I think he's that's fair. very unpleasant <laughs> to spend any time with. Uh, particularly when you see like the the focus of his obsession with Catherine de Burr. You're just like, oh man. That's very funny. Well, I don't know. I mean, look, uh, no, I, mean, I stand by what I said. Obviously, that's the commentary that Jane Austen was, going, was, was making. And I think any, any good reading of the, the novel... We'll pick that up, but rightly or wrongly, there is this there is this desire for those sort of traditional ways of life where where life was just simpler. I mean, rightly or I mean, I, I, I for many reasons, like I said before, I'm glad I don't live in that time. But and I mean, maybe I'm because I'm a romantic, and um, and and many of the the structures of society just really appeal to me, even though. You know, I, I would be far worse off in many ways than I am now. And I mean, and of course, you read this and you think, "Oh, I wouldn't mind life like that." But the, the yeah. vast, like the vast majority of people, were dirt poor. And if you did live in that time, you were probably one of the extremely <laughs> impoverished and not the sort of middle to upper class like a lot of uh, Jane Austen's heroines are. But I think that is uh, sorry, and uh, I didn't mean to sound like I was chastising no, your interpretation fine. because because I do think that they are not aspirational novels, but but they are. In the sense that in, in modern times we'd like to watch superhero films because we, we can project our desires onto those beings. I think that for readers of Austen's time and for many years, including present day, you do aspire to, to be... Like, she presents the landed gentry as having their own social fears and concerns, but you do want to be them. Like the, I, yeah, I think, I think that that. there's something about Jane Austen, not just Jane Austen even, but there is definitely something about her novels, um, in particular perhaps, that it does fulfil some sense of yearning that I think yeah. that you have in the human soul. And I'm not sure whether that is a yearning for a simpler time or for values that don't really exist anymore. That's that's my personal experience, and I, I that's just my personal opinion on why hmm. so many women in particular love them, because there is just this emotional fulfilment of sort of the way that you, you wish life could be in some way. Obviously Obviously not the whole thing. No, def- definitely. Yeah, I think it definitely fulfills that. I think that is why uh, adaptations do present it as, as a very beautiful place. I mean, probably unrealistically, but but you know, the costuming and the comportment and the relationships between the people. It, it's elegant language and elegant behaviours. It is idealised. It's charming. It's, There's a charm yeah. about that, yeah. I think. And it's very important. I mean, Austen doesn't 
deny or, as it were, push under the rug the uglier side of yeah. of that world. Yeah. I mean, you have Fanny Price impoverished and growing up in a house, I mean, some like a stereotype a of what people now think of as um, mm. 19th century England. You have her, and then, of course, you do have poor Harriet Smith, this <laughs> lower-class woman taken on by Emma. Pygmalion kind of... Yes, yeah. but, the, but, the, but yes, that side of life is there, she doesn't deny, but it's not her focus. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you can say more generally, I was looking for this earlier and I found it, the beginning of Chapter 48 of Mansfield Park, let other pens dwell on guilt and misery. I quit such odious subjects as soon as I can, impatient <laughs> to restore everybody, not greatly in fault themselves, to tolerable comfort and to have done with all the rest. <laughs> that could almost serve as an epigraph to Jane Austen's work. That's there. true. Um, and once again, one of those very rare moments where the author, as it were, really takes off a mask and speaks to you and then vanishes again. And I think, yeah, it does capture something very important about all of Austen's books. There really is no genuine sugarcoating in Austen. I mean, she's presenting a world in all its ugliness, but she doesn't dwell on the ugliness. No. She just says, it's there, I've said as much about it as I need to, let's move on. Yeah. And that too, I think, is essential to what's so wonderful about these books. And, and I think it's in very... In what way? Can you expand on that? Well, okay, negatively, it prevents the books from being saccharine. And I think that this Very is a trap point. that adaptations can fall into, to be honest. <laughs> I have this feeling about the Emma adaptation, but we'll argue about that until we die, I'm sure. <laughs> Next time. Um, yeah, it, it's very important not to make Jane Austen saccharine and overly sweet and revolting because the books are nothing like that. Yeah. But equally, it's really important not to get hung up on the idea that you know this is satire, social commentary on how ugly things are and what, she wanted a revolution in England? No. She's the, <laughs> the least revolutionary writer imaginable. She just takes... I might take issue with that, but but certainly, yeah, she wasn't like, let's burn this system down, like it wasn't... No, yeah. she ta- she takes the world as it is, yeah. and her interest is in the individual souls within it. And, yeah, she I think she sees very clearly what's wrong with the world, what's good about it, hmm. and for her, that is simply the setting. And again, it, it's easy to feel dissatisfied with that in today's world, where we sort of want to politicise everything, but... Do we, though? Mm. I think some people well, do. I don't I think, think the majority well, of people who, do. Depends on who we are, of course. <laughs> but, but yeah. I think a lot of people enjoy it for that very reason. It's not politicised. We can actually mm. get away from the politicisation of everything else in our world. I think that's another reason it's so appealing. Well, I do, yeah, I think, I think you're both right. I think they're, they're texts that have that, that capacity. They can be, I don't want to say wish fulfilment, that's, that's too flippant, but, the, but they can be a kind of escapism where, you know... You, For sure. Yeah, there, there I don't is... think that's a bad thing, though, either. I think I'm, escapism I has a very negative connotation, but I, I don't certainly don't thing. mean it to have any kind of negative connotation because I, I find it that way as well. However, I, I think, as, as you're saying, Jeremy, it, it, she doesn't deny that there is danger in this sort of social sphere and that there are uh, Oh, like perils. when they get the gypsies and yes, Harriet. Yes, good, another example, that's right. Hmm. Which is one of the only... Sorry, just to interrupt you. That is actually one of the only times that that really happens in her novels, where you feel some real kind of imminent danger towards the characters just because they are are ladies and they don't actually... They don't Mm. actually... If they're by themselves, they don't have a way of, you know, really protecting themselves. Although women um, face different... Again, I'm not attempting to politicise the the (laughs) books, but but, um, Austen makes us aware that women face different dangers within this society. Like... uh, 
on on a more innocuous level, you can have someone like Jane, who rumours can be circulated about her that well she's misleading Mister Bingley, and you know that uh, that she's emotionally quite manipulative and cruel, and that sort of whisper campaign can damage her capacity to well, her to, reputation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So on that level, but it can also get to the to the level of uh, say in uh, Northanger Abbey, what's her name, Isabella, the the horrid. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, no. The, the friend that she meets in Bath who's just uh, yeah, infuriating Isabella. to deal with. She's um, awful. Yeah, Isabella, by the end of that book, and, and it, it's acknowledged but just kind of brushed aside, but she's, because her reputation is destroyed by the by the way that she's behaved, but still, uh, because her reputation is destroyed, she's basically ruined yeah. now. Yeah, and, and so, the, again, that's a very real danger that, flipping back to Pride and Prejudice, the whole back end of that book and everything that happens with uh, Lydia is a nightmare that the family has to deal with because it will ruin Lydia, it will ruin all of the rest of the sisters, that mm. there is real danger and peril in these uh, social niceties and, and engagements. And and I think that was clearly a source of deep frustration for Jane Austen. This is just my own personal take. That, and that's why I think she devotes time talking about it because it could even just be that the flippant actions of an unthinking person or even just the misunderstanding of something that was actually quite innocuous. Yeah. That could lead to someone's reputation being destroyed. Like their life being ruined really yeah. forever. And it could happen so easily. And, yeah, no, I definitely think that's part of the commentary. And I think that that was... And also, the, you know, the, the inequality there, that, that, that the same rules didn't really apply to men that, that did to women in that way. Yeah, and, and I do think that Austen directs our attention to this whole social sphere of peril that people aren't as aware of. As, as you said, at the time, people are wondering about Napoleonic Wars and, and people heading off to do brave, manly, deathly things. But she's talking about there is there's real danger and, and dramatic potency in just the way in which people interact with one another it makes her characters more rich it makes just daily conversation more sort of loaded and fraught. yeah absolutely mm-hmm. and again i think that's why she she is such a master of dialogue is is the way in which what is being said and what is being communicated beneath the surface or between the the, the sentences can be quite disparate and making the reader aware of those multiple layers is an extraordinary feat oh and i think that's why she was so popular because i mean the no one talked about this really but this was what affected the majority of people this was much more common to the everyday men than the napoleonic wars which affected Mm. only a very small percentage no one was really talking about the real day-to-day uh issues that they were all dealing with i I think that's why yeah i think that's why it's so brilliant and so innovative Definitely. Well, we've talked about a couple of the characters, but it might be worth uh, lingering more on on that. Again, Austen is rightly celebrated for creating these rich, multifaceted creatures who uh, I think E.M. Forster... Referred, would refer to them as like a round character, oh, yeah. a flat character. They exist. They're very three dimensional. Yeah, outside of just the confines of their. You narrative. could imagine meeting them. They're so real. Absolutely. Do you have a particular character that that strikes you as representative of that, that capacity? Oh, I think they all are. Like, which character would I like to meet the most? Um, just which character <laughs> do, do you find the most fascinating? I mean, there are a couple of her characters. To be honest, I Lizzie. I think Lizzie is probably the one I find fascinating, but maybe for more individualistic reasons than anything else. And I think that uh, it's also a reflection on just how late people mature these days compared to how... I mean, you look at the these characters and, and often the way that, you know, the actors that portray them in 
modern adaptations are far older sometimes than the actual ages of the characters were because it's almost difficult for us to imagine someone like Lizzie's like 20 years old that, that's very young she's 19 or 20 when the when the book starts and I'm not but, yet one and 20 yeah. and mm. she's exactly and uh but she's often she but you would see her as someone who's maybe about 26 or 27 in our sort of day mm. standards of, of maturity and she just know I love her because she, and I find her so fascinating I think I'd be super intimidated if I met her because she's just got this wonderful self-possession. She knows who she is. And she, and as someone who's kind of struggled with my own sense of, you know, who I am for, for most of my adult life, I just find that eminently compelling and fascinating. Mm. And I, I, like, where does that come from? Why does she know who she is so well? And, and, and you can see that comes out particularly and most brilliantly in all the scenes that she's in with Lady Catherine de Bourgh. And I think that Lizzie is meant to stand out as someone who is a little bit more courageous mm. and a little bit more self-possessed than other than her peers because she is actually able to <laughs> respond to and answer, sometimes quite bluntly, uh, Lady Catherine's questions in a way that shocks the people around her mm. because she's not intimidated by her because she knows herself so well. And I just, I love, I just love Lizzie's character for that reason and for, and for many others, but... Yeah, it's quite a, a, an extraordinary interaction that goes on there because, because uh, as I mentioned before, Austen's usually just concerned with the landed gentry. She doesn't usually go up into the aristocracy, but of course, Lady Catherine. And but when Burr she does it, it's is, kind of it's kind of made it's sort of mocked in a way. It's made fun of. I mean, Lady Catherine's kind of even though she's so like all the other characters, are very three dimensional, a very real character. She's kind of ridiculous in a way. You know, there's those lines about how she will just keep talking. To, mm. No matter who's in the room, and she'll, and but as soon as someone a bit more interesting or a bit more important comes along, she'll completely ignore the usual <laughs> rabble and then just shift all of her conversation over because she's just so vain and so shallow. It's true, uh, but the, the, she Austen represents the the kind of gravity that that character brings with her. So as you said, when Lizzie doesn't kind of dance to her tune as she um, as she wants, it is seen as a remarkably kind of rebellious thing that, mm. that you know, people can't even properly deal with the fact that she, well she asked you a question and you're not answering it in the way that she wants like that seems mm. outrageous uh, and, and well, you're, you're saying right, an does. opinion how dare you yeah exactly and yeah um did you have any uh, obviously emma um uh, jeremy oh, yes. but i mean you have any other I, I, well i was just thinking as you were talking about lizzie I mean, the only thing i'd add to that and, and not not to spoil the picture i have just to round it up one reason she's courageous is because she is prideful Hmm. Yeah. She's got a sense of her own worth, and she she likes up to a point. She likes to spar. She likes to puncture. That's very true. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but she but she's not. But it's funny how Jonathan can write her in a way that doesn't that doesn't make her seem like an unlikable character. Oh, no, 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 I'm not saying that for a moment. But but it's very important. And it's of kind of it, admirable, and it has something to do with why it takes her a while to get together with Darcy, of course. Mm. Mm. Because she's got all this presupposition, and because she knows herself so well, she's not likely to take on other people's um, opinions as readily as she will her own. Well, and she also, I forget the exact line, but there's a, I don't think it made it into the series, interestingly. She's talking to Jane about the pleasure that one gets out of um, railing at people. She says something like, it's such a spur to one's genius to, to be able to criticise people. And she's yeah, berating yeah. herself. And again, it's a beautiful line because, of course, she's absolutely right. And, yeah. you know, where would we be without saying nasty things about people? Um <laughs> Okay, not to put too fine a point in it. Um, but, yeah, she recognises that in herself. And, I mean, there, for instance, she's very different from Anne Elliot. I mean, Emma has, as it were, you know, some of that, that pride in puncturing, but less of the self-command and self-knowledge that Lizzie has, which is why she has her crisis. Whereas, yes, on the, at the other end of the spectrum, you have, I don't know what word do you see, the, the demure, the quiet, the sad Anne Elliot. Mm. Yes, intelligent, 
knowledgeable, has self-knowledge. Um, but so misunderstood by almost everyone yes. around her. I mean, her. In, in a certain sense, her fault, if she can be said to have one, is the opposite of Lizzie's, too tentative, too trusting in other people's judgment, not her own, yes, mm. um, and therefore risking not actually marrying the man she loves and who loves her. And then, I mean, we're sort of jumping around a bit here, I know, but then you have the, the, the puzzle of Fanny Christ. <laughs> I mean, let me say, uh, Mansfield Park, I, I do not like... A lot of people don't. I read it... Um, I feel it's the most difficult. Yes, I read it many years ago, and I, I've never been prompted to, to read it all the way through again. I mean, I feel as if, you know, for good reason, of course, we've been focusing on the female characters. Um, <laughs> when it comes to the male characters... Mr. Collins, what a <laughs> hero. <laughs> You're a dear. Um, <laughs> so brilliantly portrayed. I know we're not talking about the series too much, but no, I, do no. I do love how he was portrayed in the BBC series. He was portrayed very well. The funny thing is, actually, I, I mean, I remember just, for instance, again, talking about sense and sensibility, I, I read that for the first time on an aeroplane, actually, and I knew before I read it what it was, I mean, I'd seen, again, the film, and, and I knew what it was about, and, and I actually didn't particularly expect to like it, because, once again, I didn't like the film, we might talk about that in a future podcast, and to my amazement, not only did I love it, but I, I actually found myself identifying with not Eleanor, but Marianne. Really? Yes. Mm. Wow, that doesn't... <laughs> <laughs> What? Sorry, that's not a judgment on your character. I'm just no, no, it what, wasn't what I expected either. But why was that? Why did you identify Marion? It would take me a while to remember distinctly what it was. Because she's but... definitely the one I identified more with. Mm. Than Can Eleanor. I speculate? Sure. Um, because I, I think you, you mentioned earlier that, that Austen is an author who very rarely uh, kind of addresses the reader directly. Mm. Um, but a couple of times when she does, say Northanger. Abby frequently she she talks about these are my expect well these are what I know you as a reader are expecting in this novel and what she's alerting us to is uh, romantic novelistic structures yeah the 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 impulses of the novels of her day which is that uh, grand adventure is waiting just around the corner and big romances are going to occur and I really identify with Catherine for that reason because that was 100% me at the same age well exactly but and and I think she's sympathetic to readers and also characters within her fictions that can get swept away in that Mm. way and that's what Marianne is in Sense of Sensibility obviously Catherine in Northanger Abbey kind of gets chastised for that and has to kind of grow up. It's a little bit true of Marianne is, as, as well. But, mm. I, but I think she wants you as the reader to feel that, that uh, the romance and the possibility of uh, change and adventure and mm. love and all those things that, that Marianne represents, whereas Eleanor, in, in contrast, is m- more restrained. So when she gets delivered the, that kind of hopeful possibility, it's more impactful at the end, but you have to build up to that again. So mm. Marianne sort of carries that, that possibility throughout the novel. No. Perhaps. I mean, just going back to your surprise, it, it might help to explain also why I identify with Marianne. If I say, um, when I was a teenager, I fell in love with Wagner. He was my life, in a sense, for wow. two years. <laughs> yes, that I, I really can relate to, that sort of, you know, the, the, this, this teenage, I, I don't know what word to use, idealism isn't the right word, but this thought that, look, emotion and drama and romanticism, in every sense of that word, 
this is what's real. This is the yeah. Kind of real yeah. life. I, I can actually very, very much identify with But her. I think that, to be I'm not throwing this out here, I think most people actually identify more with Marianne than they do with Eleanor for that mm. reason, because there is a real visceralness to her nature. They're just that, the, the real focus on the, the real emotional experiences on life. Indeed. And feel. at the same, well, for that very reason, perhaps, it's a great antidote to everything that's wrong with that to read the novel and to love it, because, mm. of course, you could say, in the sense, Marianne ends up discovering. Well, the selfish brat she's been. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and also just true. the date. I mean, I mean, I think that the the Marianne's views on life are quite extreme, and that's why it takes an extreme situation. I mean, she nearly loses her life to mm. actually come to her senses, so to yes. speak. Mm. But the, the, the impulse of the reader is, of course, like the, the these two young heroines are in, and I use that word in a loaded sense because, of course, in Northanger Abbey. Austin's constantly alerting us to the danger of saying heroin and the novelistic connotations that it has. But in Sense and Sensibility, we have our two heroines and they're in a terrible situation and you want them to be rescued. So your impulse, like Marianne's, is, well, come on, come on, author, like rescue them, like give them the opportunity to escape from this uh, circumstance. And of course she will eventually. All of these books have their happy endings to to whatever uh, extent you want to grant them that. But... I think she's not misleading the reader to give them that uh, longing or that desire or that expectation, perhaps. And it certainly aligns us with Marianne, who... No, I think that Jane Austen's very deliberately uh, writing... wrote, it, wrote Sense and Sensibility in the way that she did it to serve as a warning against against going too far in that in that direction and the dangers that it actually has. I think Marianne is actually very much sort of a, an indicative kind of character for that for that kind of danger, if that mm. makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Probably my least favourite of her novels, actually, Sense and Sensibility. I love it. I love it. I love all of them. So when I say least favourite... Oh, actually, probably no, no, Mansfield Park's probably my least favourite. But But I still liked Mansfield Park. I didn't hate it the way that a lot of other people did, but it's definitely my favourite. string hatred. I think Persuasion is one of her most underrated novels, actually. Lovely novel. Does seem to be a resurgence of love for... Well, I shouldn't say resurgence, but a a surgence in the the first place of, of love for Persuasion. Being published uh, posthumously, it perhaps wasn't given as much attention as dessert. But just to go back to what you were saying before about the the male character, I mean, I'd like to sort of get into this a little bit more actually, because I, I love I love the male characters in in uh, in her novels. Mister Knightley in particular is probably my favourite of all of them, just because he's <laughs> so funny. I mean, he's just I love how he knows Emma so well, and he's mm. and he's constantly sort of like poking fun, but kind of in a loving, sort of gentle, kind of moulding and shaping her to sort of become the person yes. that he knows that is really there, kind of. Buried inside somewhere. I have scolded you and lectured you, and you put up with it as no other woman in England would have. Yeah, <laughs> I, oh, he's just amazing. I mean, that scene. Like, I mean, let me just say that that chapter, I should say, where they end up discovering that yes, we love each other. I at one time, I, every time I read it, it brought me to tears. Oh it's yeah. Just, oh, it's so exquisitely written. Perfect chapter, and it, and it has that beautiful line right near the end. Again, the author suddenly steps in. Seldom, very seldom complete truth belong to any human communication. You know, mm. it's just wonderful. Uh, like I said, I've, you're making me want to reread it because I've only read mm. it the one time and it was some years ago, so I, I don't remember that line, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it is just wonderful. I'm trying to, I, I won't get this right, but it goes on something like, um, yeah, seldom does it, does it not happen that something is you know, a little mistaken or a little concealed or something like that. But if, as in the present case, um, though the sense be mistook, the feeling is not, it may not be very material. Because, of course, mm. there is still this unspoken thing about... Harriet about yeah. you know, Emma having thought that oh maybe 
maybe you should marry Harriet, and she doesn't. And, and initially, she thinks that that's what he's come to tell her. And you um, just think, gosh, Emma, you're so silly. Yes, but of course, but there is still that little concealment. She doesn't tell him that, mm. um, understandably. And so, but but again, because it's so beautifully done, it doesn't mar it. It actually adds to the perfection of the moment and of the chapter. Mm. As in, yes, but and again, that I almost think too could could serve as an epigraph to Austen's work. You know, look, this is human life. Very little we say to each other is completely honest. There's constant pretense and vanity and misunderstanding, but it doesn't always have, doesn't always have to matter. Mm. <laughs> That's, as it were, the moral of Jane Austen's oeuvre. Yeah. <laughs> can I add to that as well? You said mm. misconception, and I, I do think that that is crucial to understanding what, what a masterful writer is she, that she is, is she presents characters that don't know themselves. Yes. And that, that sounds like such an obvious, redundant thing to say, but... It's, it's quite an exquisite portrait that she's able to present. We, we live with characters for a long time who are fundamentally, fundamentally misunderstand their own nature. Mm. And frequently the, the books are about them going on a journey that allows them to discover how misconceived they were. Again, that sounds painfully obvious, but it's so nuanced and subtle. Mm. Like the, the way in which Lizzie has to recalibrate, the way in which, uh, obviously, the, the sisters in Sense and Sensibility each have to learn their lessons in major uh, ways. You know, a character like like Emma, you have that. Well, it's what Emma's all about, of course. Exactly. I mean, it's why the, it's the only one of her books with the, the title character is the name of the book. But I, I just, mm. I just wanted to, to. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. To quote, the, the, the moment in, in which she really captures that, that sense of coming to a place in which you can examine your own mind and not know yourself, to, to, to finally come to comprehend the ineffable, unknowable quality of, of the self. And she said, that the rest of the day, the following night, were hardly enough for her thoughts. She was bewildered amidst the confusion of all that had rushed on her within the last few hours. Every moment had brought a fresh surprise, and every surprise must be a matter of humiliation to her. Mm. How to understand it all, how to understand the deceptions she had been thus practising on herself, and living under the blunders, the blindness of her own head and heart. She sat still, she walked about, she tried her own room, she tried the shrubbery. In every place, in every posture, she perceived that she had acted most weakly, that she had been most imposed on by others in a most mortifying degree, mm. that she had been imposing on herself in a degree yet more mortifying, that she was wretched and should probably find this day but the beginning of wretchedness and of course she's being way too harsh on herself at that point but that that sense of like her whole body uh and mind are revolting against this self-examination but it's necessary and she has yes. to go through this process to understand i think also the if you compare that with the very beginning of the novel again the novel yeah. begins with her name emma woodhouse they handsome and rich but but the remark and it's it's just like this you know this dark shadow from a far distance um you know, the real eels of her situation um, were, yes, that she was inclined to think a little too well of herself. Yes. Inclined to have a little too much her own way. And yeah. again, like how many teenage girls, but you think, and yes, the result of that, of this conceit and yes, an excessive power in her house is this utter self-deception that she discovers later on. She's got to be the most lovable spoiled brat on paper. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> yes. But there is that, that fascinating combination of, like, mm. she's, she's a character who is indulged she hasn't had to to grow up and take on uh, mm. the kind of social responsibilities of falling in love and, and uh, well, making a match i should say rather than, than falling in love but um the responsibilities that 
she will need to undertake so that her father's inheritance and everything mm. is secure. But at the same time, she does have responsibilities of care of her father. Absolutely. So there is yeah, this weird combination of a sense of importance and autonomy combined with uh, the ability to remain very juvenile at, mm. at a certain level. Talking of self-discovery, of course, yes. Back to the male characters. Oh, of course, yes. Darcy. Oh, <laughs> yes. yes. How can Learning you not love Darcy? Darcy? I don't want to say it, but yes. <laughs> so and <laughs> <He's> so. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, mm. it's funny how... I'm, I'm just going to bring the series into it just very briefly. It's funny how so, uh, so many people, myself included, watch that the BBC version of Pride and Prejudice and are convinced that they're just not going to be fans of Darcy. They don't like Colin Firth, you know, they don't like the way he's portrayed, or they just don't like the character and uh, mm. he's not attractive. They're not going to find him attractive. And every single person that I've ever... Um, show the series to or talk to about it has changed their minds at the walking out of the lakes. I was just thinking everybody that, yes. turns like actually I do kind of like yeah. this Jessica. And that's kinda of funny the but I think that's actually that's not in the book but yeah. it's in not in the book, which was really disappointing when I first read the novels. <laughs> but um but what I think that but I think that's funny, but I think that actually illustrates a greater truth and that's the point that's there is a turning point where Lizzie does come to Pemberley and sees his house and, and there is a there is a definite softening that has happened in Darcy's mm. character between when she rejected him, which was the last time they talk, they saw each other, to now when they have that reunion, and both of them have really, really grown yes. in themselves mm. out, as a result of that, as a result of that um, that encounter. And I think that that's, I think that, that you really feel that it's not just that he, you know, he's got a wet shirt on or anything <laughs> in particular. It's, it's, I mean, it's partly that, but it's better. And I know that's just in the series and not in the book, but it, but there definitely is a change that's happened in Darcy's character and. You really, yes. He's grown. He's hmm. admitted he that he treats his guests with politeness and grace. It's, yeah, and hmm. I mean, I think that he probably always did, but perhaps there was maybe more of a, a distancing before. He's become hmm. a much more human person because he's perhaps been somewhat divorced from his own emotions for hmm. most of his hmm. life, probably because he was maybe brought up with that sort of you know, English gentry, stiff up a lip sort of attitude. Also, oh. by his own admission, very uncomfortable around people. So, obviously. Sometimes, Except for his small set. Yes, yeah. So he's he's not that good at socialising just in general. It's not it's not a rudeness so well, much as it is a yes and no. I mean, as as Lizzie says to him, you know, I do not play as well as I would like on this instrument, but I I put that down to my own fault for lack of practice. Mm. Mm, true. And and yes, I mean he's he's an, an arrogant you know, upper class schoolboy basically who wants to remain an arrogant supreme, you know, superior schoolboy and therefore doesn't learn. Basic social graces. I mean, and that's feels entitled it, to certain things. Yes, that's putting it very, very bluntly. But, but I think no, um, you're right. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, I hadn't thought of it before really, but it, it would be interesting in a way to compare him. You can almost do an essay on it. Compare Darcy's transformation with Emma's, because mm, because in, in a sense they're very like each other. I mean, they're, they're both yeah, they both think too well of themselves and mm-hmm. have too much of their own way. And have people around of, them praising exactly, them. Exactly, that's right. And at the same time, they're also both, even before their you know, discovery of what they're like, they're actually quite virtuous in certain ways. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and the fact that at the same time, I, you know, I'm sure no one would immediately think of comparing those two, and I suspect one simple reason is because, well, one's a man, one's a woman, and she does portray the differences very nicely. Mm. Um, but that's the one, that's, one of the, that's one of the many things I love about these novels is that the, the transformation and the growth of these characters is just so realistic as well. It's mm. not far-fetched. It's not a, it doesn't require a suspension of disbelief. You can really see and understand why Darcy has begun to change because some very unpleasant realities, some inconvenient truths, one might say, about his own character have been 
basically put smack bang in front of his face by Lizzie during that proposal mm. scene. One of the best it's written scenes. Scene. <laughs> I think in English literature it's so good. If I was that yes. if I was that if I was able to just be able to think on the spot and <laughs> say the things that Lizzie does, I'd be a much happier person mm. um, with myself. But yeah, I, I think that um, I, I think that's why there's so much charm to these novels because it's so believable. Mm-hmm. Because she understands humanity and human beings and her characters so so well. And I just think that's really you know, that's really beautifully exemplified in Darcy's transformation and uh, and also Emma's, but also Lizzie's as well. I would also just just throw in the mix there that, that <laughs> Lizzie also has to re-examine her. Oh, I said Lizzie as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay. She definitely has to grow up. But also to to examine her own, not just pride, not but up, her own grow. Yeah, her her own prejudices that that she brought into that relationship. Clearly, Mister Darcy has maybe a longer road to to walk. But what I love is that that Austen, you know, the, this again sounds like a really redundant observation, but. Pride and prejudice is something that both of those characters. Yeah, I was just going to say this yeah. actually. When I was a little kid, not a little kid, but when I was when I first I read this novel, I think when I first of all when I was eleven years old, and I was a bit too young to really understand it. But uh, and then I read it again a few years later. But I remember when I was that age, I was trying to think now which one is pride and which one is pride. I was trying to understand which mm. one was the. Mm. And I thought initially, you know, maybe Darcy represented pride. And, and uh, Lizzie represented prejudice, and obviously it's not that allegorical. But as I've grown older and begun to understand a bit more about life and the world, it's true they both have elements yeah. of both of them in each other, and it's not one versus the other. It's both kind of you know, like mashing against each yeah. other. Yeah, and and by honestly coming together and being able to scrutinise their own faults, they enrich each other. It's not that it's not like that. Even though Pride and Prejudice is kind of held up uh, somewhat frustratingly as the the quintessential romantic comic novel, you know, that, that it, I mean, it set the archetype that everybody then rips off in you know, every romantic comedy since you mentioned you got mail, but it is that, you know, like two people who are in conflict with, but, but, you know, it, it's become the, uh, the, the skeleton upon which yes. any romantic comedy narrative tropes hang. But what, what I, I love about it is that they are perfect for each other, not because one's the funny one and one's the serious <laughs> one, but because uh, they bring to the relationship the same faults that they're able, by reflecting upon one another, to better themselves. Mm. So it's... You know, no, I agree. I think that's a great point. Don't be so down on yourself, Colin. No. <laughs> I don't have a Lizzie. Um, so, do we want to kind of go around the room and maybe discuss, uh, if we had to, gun to our head, I, I suspect I know your answer, Jeremy, but gun to our head, what's our favourite Jane Austen novel and why? Well, I think we all know Jeremy's. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Definitely, Emma. Um, Mansfield I Park. I don't, know where to, I don't know where to start in saying why, but... Um, in fact, why don't I think about wine while you give your answers? <laughs> That's a really hard question because I, I love I love the most I love I mean I, I love Pride and Prejudice I love Persuasion when I read it it was a real revelation to me and I <clears throat> found I really identify with the character and I love Northanger Abbey for the same reason oh, look if I have to choose one and it's it's a cliche but I guess I have to choose Pride and Prejudice because I probably because it's the story I know best and it's the one I've thought the most about um, but I just I think there is a reason it's so perennially popular um, and has been ever since it was written uh, I think there's just oh, I love Emma as well though it is hard I, look it's, it's a gun to my head it's, it's, it's a tough question if I, it was a gun to my head I would probably say Pride and Prejudice I should probably put this gun away by the but, way uh, <laughs> yeah stop pointing it at me no. but uh, you know, I, I, but I, I love it for the same reason I love so many others is because they're so human 
and she I love I love how well the humanity is represented in the characters and in their relationships in their relationships with each other. But I also love how that's couched in these greater ironized reflections on society and the faults therein. And that's you can say that of any of her novels to be no, honest, but I, perhaps I love Pride and Prejudice the most maybe just because it's the one I'm most familiar with and yeah. No, well, this probably wasn't the most helpful question uh, to pose to the room because I'm going to back that up. My favourite would have to be Pride and Prejudice, maybe with Emma very close behind. But I do love in, in Pride and Prejudice, as, as I was sort of indicating before, I, I love that there is a necessary duality that's going on in there, that, that mm. Darcy and Lizzie really do need each other and, and that they are so profoundly changed by the calamitous kind of relationship that they have for the majority of the book. And, and I do love like the back end of that book where they're both transformed people and they're both Oh, the last to... chapter is my favourite chapter of it's... Pride and Prejudice, the one that no one ever really digs into in the adaptation. It's gorgeous, Sorry. yeah. No, 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 not at all. I, I, I do I love, love that it. chapter so much. But seeing as how we've already um, mentioned Pride and Prejudice, I, I will throw out some love to Northanger Abbey. It's by no means my favourite, but I love... Northanger Abbey is so wonderfully metatextual, as I mentioned before. Mm. Like It's it's the, the book in which Jane Austen enters uh, most frequently to go I as an author am setting up these expectations <laughs> that are then going to baffle you that's what she she's of course doing with with Catherine is this is a character who is very misconceived and who is very idealistic idealistic specifically because of the novels that she's read she she's read too many of these romantic fictions that have baffled her with all of these uh, expectations so you get all that wonderful material where she finds the the piece of paper when it's night time when she's at Northanger Abbey and convinces herself, oh, it must be a secret message from somebody who's dead who's probably got some sort of horrible secret. It's just a laundry list. Yeah, that is so me. Like that was, that was me funny. when I was a teenager, always wanting things to be more exciting and adventurous, romantic than they actually were. And then, of course, thinking that Mr. T- oh, Captain Tilney, I should say, murdered his wife. And you have those chapters is it where Captain she... Captain Tilney? Is it Mr. Tilney? Oh, Captain Tilney. Oh, sorry, yeah. the, the father. I the father, yeah. I Oh, it's General Tilney, sorry. General Tilney. General the, Tilney the, and the... The cap- son is the, cap- the horrible You're brother. You're absolutely right. Um, but yeah, she, she fluctuates during a couple of uh, chapters between thinking he definitely murdered his wife and, oh no, he couldn't possibly be. <laughs> and all of that delusion and misconception, Austin is delighting in the fact that this is... These are the perils of uh, believing in fiction too much while she's presenting you a beautifully constructed falsified fiction um and just on that note if i could just jump in for a second one thing i actually because i I saw the recent probably not so recent but the um the it was just a movie a bbc movie made of northanger abbey with felicity jones i think playing the main character and um it's it's great i actually really love it but one thing i actually really liked and this is very very rare i actually liked in the what they did in the film better than in the book in in, when she realizes the error of her ways at the end when she realizes that her romanticized imagination is actually Really disrupted things, and 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 because she's because she's kind of obsessed with this idea that that, Cap, that General Tilney has murdered his wife, and when he, and when she actually says it out loud, it sounds so silly. Yeah. And then she sees how, and she sees herself reflected poorly in Mister Tilney's eyes, and that just crushes her. And but they deal with that that crushing disappointment and, and her own sort of coming down harshly upon herself and, and berating herself. That that is actually unpacked a bit more in the in the film version than in the book. And I was kind of surprised when I because I read the book after I'd seen the film that it's not brushed over exactly, but certainly there isn't that deep sense of remorse that I got from the watching the film yeah. as I did in the book. And I and because I thought that was kind of the point that she realised 
you know, this is this is the era of an overactive imagination, as he says. Yeah, well, I think it's there, but you're it right. It is there, but I like that they, that they delve into that a bit yeah. more. I would also, very, very quickly before moving on, because I totally agree, I, I, I do love that component. I just would also quickly throw in there that I really respect the love story that, that she puts in there, that Henry Tilney, it's not uh, love at first sight. She makes a big point of that mm. in those final uh, chapters. <laughs> she acknowledges that Henry Tilney was just... Kind being, of bluntly. <laughs> yeah, but... It, she says, like, he was just being polite to her at the beginning. There was no actual romantic attraction on his... I, I think the but word... But she was definitely the instigator of the romance between them. Definitely. And and I think the, the word that she used... I want to just find the actual yeah, word. Because uh, it's so... It's so brutal. Um, <laughs> gratitude. He felt a kind of polite gratitude when he noticed that she had an affection for him. Gratitude, that's just so... But of course, the... the... But that does transform it to genuine love. No, absolutely, and I really respect that she does that. Again, she... This is... These are the final uh, pyrotechnics of her um, novelistic power. Like, she even throws in a little gag at the end where Tilney's sister... What's her name? I can't remember. It doesn't matter. But, uh, I mean, I love... Miss Tilney. Yes, Miss, Miss Tilney, uh, who of course is a devoted good friend to, to Catherine at this point. She ends up marrying somebody who Austin notes isn't really relevant to the story, so I left him out. But um, she met him because of that stupid laundry list that, uh, that Catherine had found many years ago. That, that was one of his servants had left it there. So she throws in a little bit of... Uh, I don't even remember that part. Yeah, it's, it's just this funny little novelistic twist that she throws in the end. Just for no reason, just because she's playing around, it's just fun. But with the romance, she won't, she won't budge. It's, it's not love at first sight. It was never love at first sight. It was something more organic that had to grow into. Yeah, reality. and I think that that's nice because she's turning that trip on its head, but she's also pointing out something which is probably very realistic and yeah. probably happened in life. Absolutely, yeah, and and it's it's more organic and it's more real because in this book in which she's playing with a lot of novelistic tropes, she keeps the human relations very real. Um, very, very organic and believable. And I'm sorry. Jeremy, why is Emma the best? <laughs> well, okay, one thought I have is that it showcases in the most extreme way the things that I love in her other books. Again, the observation of the everyday, the, the outwardly undramatic, um, and, and yes, the dark depths beneath, as it were, you know, the, the surface pleasantries of things. Um, and, and, yeah, I mean, to put it, paradoxically, if you like, the fact that it's the novel in which, in a sense, the least happens. Mm. In a certain sense, all of the essential things in the novel have either have already happened before the novel even starts, or... There's a lot of backstory yeah, with that or one. or happened very early, which means that virtually the entire novel is simply realising what's already there. Yeah, that's great. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and I really appreciate that. Also, it helps that in certain ways, believe it or not, I identify with Emma. <laughs> I do, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no, 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 I, 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 I do. And, um, I mean, Jane Austen is one of those novelists who, yes, virtually every one of her novels I've found myself identified with at least one, sometimes more, of the characters. So, again, that, that, that's a sketch of an answer, it's not... A no, answer, I think... But, but I, yeah, I think that that just points to the, just the, 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 the beautifully written humanity that she has mm. such a power over in capturing. I think that's why these characters, why we're able to, as the reader to identify with them so well. And not just one, but more than one, because she writes them all so three-dimensionally. Yeah, they don't just exist in bonnets and sipping teacups, you know, hundreds of years ago. They, they continue to reflect mm. who, we, who we are and our 
misconceptions and our hopes and our failures and all think, of those qualities. I think also Jane Austen has a great ability to, um, you know, with the characters who are not so central, she's nonetheless very able to delineate them beautifully. I mean, what, one, the two examples that come to mind, actually, one is <laughs> Mary from Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> Sad to Mary. say, we all know people <laughs> like Mary, I think. <laughs> in fact, one of my favourite lines in the whole book is where, I, I forget the context, but it's some, you know, having a conversation at the table and, um, yes... Mary wanted to think of something very sensible to say, <laughs> but couldn't. <laughs> she doesn't even try to shy away from what, no. a, what a just, I don't want to call it unlikable exactly, but just what a, what a ludicrous character Mary is. Indeed. And again, vanity. I mean, you know, she is actually motivated pretty much by, look, she wants to be clever and sensible. And no, she wants to appear clever and sensible. Exactly. That's what I meant. Yeah. Be, be thought of as, and, and also be talented on the keyboard and blah, blah, blah. And again, she's outwardly the opposite pole in a way from um, Sir Walter Elliot, who we're told at the very beginning of the novel, yes, vanity was the beginning and the end of Sir Walter's existence. <laughs> Wonderfully <laughs> blunt line, but yeah, in a certain sense, the same characters. But actually, the other no, but the other minor character I had in mind, who again is beautifully delineated, and again, how minor he is, it reflects, I can't even remember his name, in Sense and Sensibility. The one who basically, you know, his idea of being sociable is to be rude. Eleanor comes to realise that actually it's not that he's ill-bred and not that he's unintelligent. It's just that, yes, the way he puts himself forward in society is as someone who's rude, basically. And I actually, I do, I know people who are a little like that, I think. Anyway, that, that was a long-winded way of making the simple enough point that, yes, she, she, she makes sure to invest even the smaller characters with um, a kind word is humanity. Just to go back to what you said earlier, I, I think that, that is so true. There is so much depth to these novels. It's, it's such a disservice to Jane Austen to just see them as just the sort of, you know, nice costumed period dramas mm. with, you know, tea and niceties and things. There's just so much. They're so rich. Mm. and I They're about humans, so they're, yeah. they're complex and multiform and, and ugly and beautiful simultaneously. Yeah. I suppose, I mean, one final comment, and in a way it's been implicit in a lot of things I've said, I suppose. One thing I just love about her books, and, and I can't think of another writer who's as consistent on this as she is, always, you know, characters are actually responsible for their own destiny. Mm. There's not the slightest you know, sentimental or French revolutionary, oh, we're just victims of our society, Jane Austen wouldn't have a bar of that. You know, n- no matter how bad your circumstances are, you know, no matter you know, how unfortunate, no matter if you're a woman or a man or whatever, okay, you make your life. You make your bed and you lie in it. She's, and not, they do. she's no determinist. No, absolutely. No, but also she's not... I mean, it goes without saying, she's not a sentimentalist, but there's a particular kind of sentimentalism which consists in, in effect, sort of exculpating people for everything they do. That's, yeah. You know, and, you know, there's no exculpation in Jane Austen. Yeah. They, even if they are delivered a bad hand, yes. as, as does happen to some characters, they, they are given the capacity to own their behaviour going forward. Yes, and And I think that is actually what makes... I mean, when you use the word escapism before, I feel like saying, well, actually, I I can understand why you use it, but reading them, it's wonderfully centering. It's not just because it depicts an ordered world, it depicts a world in which, okay, yes, characters actually have to take responsibility and therefore have a certain genuine power that, again, Mm. sort of more stereotypically contemporary novels, which are basically about... In an endless array of victims of various kinds don't they make people powerless yeah. mm. oh, well thank you so much um, those are some of our thoughts about one of the English canon's most beloved and respected authors if you enjoyed this podcast then please do subscribe we have new episodes every other week and if you like what we're doing here please do tell your friends and if you're so inclined give us a review on iTunes those five star reviews really do help 
If you'd like to comment on anything that you've heard or offer feedback, please do drop us a line. That email is conversations at campion.edu.au. I want to thank Anna and Jeremy for joining me today in this very enjoyable discussion. Thank you. I certainly enjoyed it. Yes, it was. Thank you. And we will be back next time with another Campion Conversation. We hope that you can join us then. This episode brought to you by The Trolley Problem. Have you seen a runaway tram trolley rolling toward five people tied up on the tracks? Were you standing next to a lever that could redirect the trolley onto another track? Was there a man on that track who would therefore die in their place? Were you unsure of what action to take? Well, don't despair. You've just been caught in one of the most iconic moral philosophy thought experiments ever conceived. The Trolley Problem. Discover whether the deontological or consequentialist ethical system is right for you today. Please note, the users of the trolley problem may not be welcomed back at the Light Rail Museum. Campion Conversations is a production of Campion College of the Liberal Arts, Australia.